you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. This past Wednesday, we celebrated what might be the most underappreciated American holiday, Juneteenth. Juneteenth is the commemoration of what took place on June 19, 1865, when the news of emancipation finally reached the enslaved peoples of the farthest reaches of the United States, in Galveston, Texas, just a few miles south of here. This was over two years after Lincoln initially issued the proclamation, but what we know is that the effects of his order were not immediate. There was a promise of freedom, but the reality of freedom for many people was delayed. In Galveston and in the greater Houston area and other rural parts of Texas, slaves were still in chains groaning for a better, better reality, hoping to be delivered. Many of these men and women were faithful saints of Jesus Christ, and they could be heard in their workstations singing songs about Moses and Pharaoh and God's faithfulness to his enslaved people, his enslaved sons and daughters in Egypt. The slaves of the American South needed an exodus. So they cried out to the God of the Exodus. And on June 19th, 1865, on Galveston Island, there was singing and dancing in the streets. God had heard his people's cries. He heard their groaning. He had seen their toiling. He felt their suffering. And their songs had made their way up into the heavenly realm. Psalms like the old spiritual, which begins, Come down, come down, my Lord. Come down, way down in Egypt land. And in Exodus chapter 2, we see that God's people are in Egypt, serving as slaves, facing a government who despises them. But God had promised their ancestors that he would go down into Egypt with them and that he would bring them out. He promised them that they would be made into a great people. He promised them that even though they would be slaves in a foreign land, that he would deliver them. That one day they would have a land of their own. But in Exodus chapter 2, those promises had yet to fully come to pass. There was a proclamation of emancipation that had already been made by God, but the Israelites were still waiting for it to come to pass as they toiled in slavery, as they groaned and prayed and sang. And Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, 
and God knew. The text tells us that the cries of Israel for rescue came up to God into the courts of heaven and that he heard them and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can't miss how how profound this is. God's people are in distress and they're crying out to God and God hears them. We have a God who hears us when we cry out to him. We have a God who is in tune with the plight of his people. This morning, some of you are struggling. Some of you are hurting. Some of you are experiencing doubt or wondering when it is that God is going to move in your life. Some of you walked in this morning and feel alone and uncared for. Some of you feel that you're without an advocate. But this text is telling us that that for those of you who feel these ways, you can cry out to God and he will hear you. And when he does, he will look upon you with love and pity. And he will remember that you are one of his children to whom he has made promises. The text even says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Church, we have a knowing God. He knows our suffering. He doesn't just hear about it. He feels it. He sees our pain. Some of you might feel that you are unseen by everyone around you. Well, you're not unseen by the God of his people, the God of the Bible, the God of the Exodus. In the midst of this intimate acknowledgement of his people in Exodus 2, God is remembering his covenant that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so we have to ask ourselves, what covenant is this that is being referred to? In Genesis chapter 15, God enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham a relationship built upon the promises of God in which God promises to give Abraham, an old man who is without a child, he promises to give him offspring. Offspring who would become a great nation. Offspring that would have a land of their own. And two chapters later in Genesis 17, God reestablishes this promise with Abraham by giving Abraham a covenant sign of circumcision. This would be a sign to Abraham's people that God has set them apart, that he has promised to make them great. And in Genesis 26, God promised Abraham's son, Isaac, that he would keep the promises that he made to his father. In Genesis 35, God promises Isaac's son the same thing. Jacob receives the same promise given to his grandfather. God even gives Jacob a new name calling him Israel. And then he names all of Jacob's offspring as a nation after him. God begins to see his promises come to pass in giving this new named Israel 12 sons. He is making Israel into a fruitful nation. But now, in Exodus, Israel's sons are in slavery, 
in Egypt. They're crying out to God, and God remembers that he promised to make them into a great nation. He promised them that their offspring would be too many to number. He promised them that they would be a people set apart. God made promises to Israel, and he intended to keep them. Similarly, we as the church are God's covenant people. In Jesus Christ, God has established a new covenant with us. The new covenant of Jesus Christ does not replace the former covenants made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it clarifies them, fulfills them, and perfects them. In Luke 22, Jesus talks about this new covenant as he institutes the Lord's Supper, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. In Hebrews chapter 13, we see the author talking about this blood of the eternal covenant made with God's church. If we read the prophets before the time of Jesus, we would see them promising that one day there would be a Messiah who would establish a new covenant with God's people and that this new covenant would lead to an all new form of relationship between God and man. No more would the people rely on the circumcision of the flesh, but God would circumcise their hearts, setting them apart from within. No more would God's people rely on the guardian of the written law, but God would write the law of God on their hearts, making them into a holy people. In the circumcision of the flesh given to Abraham, God set his people apart, but he, he made them distinct. It made God's promise truly a part of the multiplication of God's people. When God gave the covenant of the law to Israel, he blessed them with this law. He blessed them with the ways that they should live and rule and worship. He blessed them with a covenant revealing his holiness, revealing his glory. But now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the guardian of the written law. But we are transformed from within as God writes the law on our hearts. The blood of Jesus sets us apart in a holistic way. And this is most notable in that God has put his very spirit to live within us as his blood-bought covenant children. So the God who gave the law is now living within us. The holiness of God is not something that we read about and aspire to, but it's something that has taken up residence in our bodies. We are God's covenant people. Through the blood of Jesus, God has made promises to us, like the promises he made to Israel. He's promised us to always forgive us of our sins. He's promised that he will rule and reign with us as his co-heirs in his kingdom, both today and throughout all eternity. He promised that he will sanctify us by the work of his spirit day by day, making us a more glorious people. Promised us that we are his children and that we have a family in his church. He's promised us that he will use us to participate in the renewal of all things, primarily 
through our proclamation of what his son Jesus has done. He's also promised us that one day Jesus will return. That he will finish the work of making all things new. And that in that day there will be no more weeping, no more tears, no more suffering. And the Bible even tells us that that day will be hastened by the prayers of God's people rising up to him in the heavens. And that he will remember his covenant to us. But for now, let's go back to Exodus. God has heard his people. And Moses is still in Midian when Exodus chapter 3 begins. And the text says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. In this account, there are physical elements that help us to begin to understand what God is doing in Exodus chapter 3, the first thing we might notice is that Moses is at a mountain, and mountains in the Bible are the place where God most often reveals himself and reveals his glory. And it's not just any mountain. The text says that it is Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is the same mountain that will be called Sinai later in Exodus when God gives the law to Moses. So it's the first of two major meetings that Moses is going to have with God on this very mountain, both of which are crucial in God's redemption of his people. The second physical element that we see in the text is fire. Fire is an indispensable element in the Bible. God regularly reveals himself to his people through fire. He appeared as a flaming torch and a smoking pot when he made his covenant with Abraham. Later on in Exodus, he will appear in a fiery cloud, a pillar of smoke. The Bible tells us that God is a consuming fire. The prophet Elijah will see God on a chariot of fire. And when God's spirit descends on the disciples at Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, he does so in flaming tongues of fire. Even in the Psalms, we are told that God will make his people into ministers of fire. So fire tells us something important about the nature of God. Fire is used both to destroy and to renew. Fire is used to destroy imperfections and to purify. Golden rings shine because they have been passed through fire. What was impure and imperfect 
doesn't make it through the heat of the fire. And so it is with God. He is holy, righteous, powerful, and awesome. And when God comes into contact with humanity or creation, wickedness is consumed in his judgment, and what is pure remains and shines all the brighter. So the consuming fire, which is God himself, appears to Moses on this mountain And because God's presence is on the mountain, we're told that the mountain becomes holy ground. That Moses is called to remove his sandals and not to come too close, lest he's consumed. And then God introduces himself to Moses as the God of Moses' fathers. This this is an important point because Moses is now encountering the God who has made these promises, these covenants with his forefathers. He's encountering the God who has chosen to relate to Israel intimately and uniquely. He's encountering the God who delivered Noah through the flood, the God who gave Abraham and Sarah children, though they were old and past their time. And and over the next few chapters in Exodus, God is going to more fully reveal to Moses his name, Yahweh, and its meaning. And by introducing himself in relationship to Moses' ancestors, God begins explaining the nature of who he is and what his name means. He's not a distant God. He isn't a temporary or new God. He's the God of a people. He's the God of history, the God of the past. He's the God of the present, the God of Moses. And he's promising that he will be the God of Moses' offspring. The name Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name given when we read the Lord in the Old Testament, that is the word Yahweh. And it comes from the Hebrew verb, which means to be. So when God says, I am, he means it. He is. He is the God who is. He is self-defined by simply being. He always has been. He always will be. The name Yahweh even speaks to God's response to other false gods who receive worship. Yahweh is the God who is, the God who is real. Those are the gods who have no being, they are not. They have never been, and they never will be. In fact, Yahweh, as a consuming fire, will destroy and consume even the memory of those not quite and not real, not at all gods. And so as Moses removes his sandals in the presence of the consuming God of all things, the God who is begins to speak. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, the Lord says. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. While the end of chapter 2 told us that God heard the cries of his people, this is the first time in Exodus that we actually hear from Yahweh himself. God speaks to Moses and says that he has seen, he has heard, he knows, and he has come down for his people. He tells Moses that his plan is to take Israel out of Egypt and give them the land that he promised them in the days of Abraham. He will make his people who are currently enslaved into rulers of a new land. He will take them from oppression in the desert to prosperity in the meadows. And this isn't a unique response of God that we only see in Exodus. This is just God's character. When he sees his people in need of rescue, when he sees them suffering and oppressed, he makes a plan to redeem them and he follows through. He is the God, as the text tells us, who comes down to deliver them. And then we see that Yahweh says something to Moses that Moses was certainly not expecting. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He says this to Moses, who fled Egypt in fear 40 years before. He says this to Moses, the man who lost his temper and killed an Egyptian. He says it to Moses, the man who lived in the palace of Pharaoh, the corrupt and evil king. He calls Moses, who has never once been enslaved like his Israelite brothers and sisters, never tasted the oppression of his people. Moses, who didn't have to hide his son when he was born, because his son was born outside of Egypt. Moses spent the last 40 years, the better part of his adulthood, in a land that is not Egypt. And now he is old, and God wants him to go and lead his people out of Egypt. And so Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And, and this is something that's debated, the tone of how Moses is saying this. Some theologians think that Moses is saying, Who am I in a way that is that is full of honor and humility. But some think that Moses is being indignant and, and cowardly. Some think he's simply confused by all that he's experiencing. And, and ultimately, I don't think we can know, and I don't think that it's that important, because what we do know is that God has chosen Moses, and that he has prepared Moses by shaping his life, the 80 years of his life until this day, with Exodus things. Moses didn't realize it, but the 80 years of his life until now have been divinely orchestrated to prepare him for this very moment. Moses is an Exodus-shaped man, even before the Exodus. And God is going to use him to lead the exodus of his people out of Egypt. 
You see, over these last 80 years, Yahweh has not only seen his people Israel in Egypt, but he has seen his servant Moses in Midian. And in verse 12, Yahweh responds to Moses, who am I? And he says, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Yahweh promises Moses that he will be with him in this mission. And he promises them him that one day there will be a time when Moses again ascends to Mount Horeb and meets with God and serves him there. Moses currently is ascended on the mountain of God, and God commands him to descend, to descend into the desert in order to deliver his people from slavery and from oppression, promising him that if he does that, then he will be allowed again to ascend the holy mountain of God to be in the presence of God's glory. Generations upon generations passed after the days of Moses, after Moses was faithful to deliver his people from Egypt, and still we know that God saw his people, enslaved not by an Egyptian pharaoh, but enslaved to sin, oppressed by the wicked, death as their taskmaster. And just like he had Moses, God had a man who had been prepared for the work of delivering. This man was his son, Jesus Christ. Like Moses, Jesus had been living in royalty before. Not in the throne room of Pharaoh, but in the throne room of Yahweh himself. Like Moses, Jesus was not living where his oppressed brethren were. He was in the heavens not on earth. Like Moses, Jesus had never tasted the slavery of his people. He was sinless and perfect. And like Moses, Jesus was ascended with and partaking in the glory of God, called to go down to deliver a people and promised that he would once again ascend to serve God. Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the one who was descended to deliver us from sin and death, the grips of a serpent king, the devil. He has shed his blood and made us his covenant people. He has sent his spirit to descend upon us, his spirit of fire. And for those who have been united to God through faith in Jesus, the consuming of fire, fire of God lives within us. And we have become ministers of fire, preaching the good news that Jesus has died for us, that he's risen in power, and that as the Father promised, that he is again ascended to the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling on our behalf from a heavenly throne. We speak the good news of our all-consuming God, news of holiness and judgment of sin, but news of purification. For all who hear this news and believe will not be consumed by the God who is all-consuming, but rather they will be saved by God, perfected, purified as with fire, and granted the ability to come near him and experience his glory in full. 
If we went all the way to the end of the Bible, we would find a book called Revelation, in which the Apostle John is given visions of how all things will come to a glorious end. The theme of the book of Revelation is simple. God looks upon his people on earth, his people who are sharing the good news of his son, and they're suffering for it. And their cries come up to him, and he hears them. He sees them. He knows them. And in that day, he, for the second time, sends his son Jesus once again to deliver his people finally and fully. In that day, God will consume and perfect all things. His people will be made glorious and all wickedness will be destroyed. He will renew and perfect the earth. You see, church, Exodus isn't just about Moses and Israel in Egypt. It isn't just about slavery on earth. It's about the way that God has ordained all of eternity to take place. So now, as God's exodus people, as his covenant people, let us go with our bellies and mouths full of the fire of Yahweh who is and descend into Montrose in order that we might deliver many out of the grips of slavery to sin and death, oppression, addiction, depression. in order that they might be delivered like the Israelites into a good and broad land where God's glory, peace, and righteousness reign forever. And when we suffer for it, we will know that God hears our cries. When we suffer for it, we will know that he sees us and he will know us and he will feel the weight of our suffering and he will not allow us to suffer forever because he will remember his covenant. He will remember his blood which covers us and he will come again for us. But for now, let's go into Egypt and free the slaves. For Jesus promised us the same thing that Yahweh promised Moses, saying in his great commission in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is with us. His blood is the sign, his spirit the seal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you We thank you that you have made us your people. Apart from anything good we've done, apart from us deserving it in any way, that you have chosen to reveal your glory to the earth by delivering us from slavery to sin, from death, from wickedness into marvelous light. We we praise you that you have given us a mission to be Exodus-shaped people doing Exodus-shaped work in this world and in this neighborhood which desperately needs to know the God who is, who always has been, who always will be, the God who hears the groanings of his people and comes down to deliver them. Would you fill us with faith in your son, the greater Moses, who descended from heaven to deliver us and is ascended again at the right hand 
interceding on our behalf, reigning and ruling with human blood pumping through his human heart. And knowing that, that there is humanity in heaven and that your spirit is on earth, let us take part in making all things new. Fill us with love for our neighbors, broken hearts for the lost, and faith and trust that you are a God who has made promises to us and that regardless of our temporary groanings, that you will keep them, that you will hear us, that you will deliver us. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray these things in your name. Amen.